Well, let's get into the study of God's Word. We are going through the book of Galatians, as Lisa just read to us, and we are in Galatians chapter 3. And Galatians chapter 3 and 4 really are just fantastic chapters. They are, in a sense, kind of, you could think of Galatians as a little, oh, Lori always warns me about this, doing things off the fly, but almost like a hot dog. You have one bun, which would be chapters 1 and 2, and chapters 5 and 6, the other bun, and chapters 3 and 4 being the meat right in between. Maybe I shouldn't have said that, but just vividly, that's what is captured, that we've got the core of the engine of Galatians really in these chapters, chapters 3 and 4. And the first five verses of chapter 3 really make a remarkable claim, which is often missed by Christians, although it is, it is critical for Christians. Uh, Paul has shown us in the last, sec- in the last section of chapter 2 that when you are saved, it is not through your moral efforts and works. It is not through your performance. As a matter of fact, he says, we've crucified that. We are dead to those things. It is not our performance that we rely on. As a matter of fact, it is the performance and works of Christ that we count on. In short, the gospel is the way into the kingdom, but Paul is saying it is way more than just that. We are not just saved by the gospel. We grow by the gospel. And it's not as if we started our Christian lives through this amazing realization that we were in desperate need of a Savior, and in faith we came to Him, but then now all of a sudden we now rely on our works and our efforts to get to be more like Him and grow. You see, the gospel, we are not just justified by our faith in Christ. We are sanctified by our faith in Christ. In other words, when it comes to the gospel, we will never get past it. That is Paul's whole point in in chapter 3 of Galatians here. And the way he breaks it down is in verses 1 through 5, he's appealing to the Galatians' own personal experience of this dynamic. And then in verses 6 through 14, he, he refers to the Scriptures and shows how the Scriptures itself makes the same case. And then in verses 15 to 29, Paul lays out this brilliant logical implications of the gospel. Now, just in the way Paul writes, um, Paul disciples us so much, and even in the structure of the way he writes and presents the gospel. We do need to be able to make a case for the gospel from our own personal experience. If you have not been captivated by Christ, if you have nothing to give, then you have nothing to give. So there's a powerful testimony to the personal, subjective experience of the gospel. But we also need to bring with that the objective truth of Scripture, Our personal experience is powerful, but not in competition to the Word of God. We need to be able to go to Scripture and show people the gospel, not just attest to it with our own personal lives. But in a world that we live in that is very postmodern, very relativistic, and even post-Christian, we really can't even rely so much on Scripture to be convincing to people because they don't even accept it. So we need to be able to do what Paul does in this third section of Galatians that we're going to look at next week and present an argument, a reason why the gospel's view of reality makes the most sense of the world. We can't just rely on our personal experience or what the Bible says. When we're dealing with people in your workplace, in your classrooms that maybe didn't even, have never even heard of the gospel, we need to be able to com- communicate gospel truths and show its compelling nature to make sense of the world around us. 
So this morning, uh, we won't have time to do all three of those, so we're just going to look at the first two points that Paul makes. Uh, So he makes two broad points, and that's how the gospel completes us in Christ. We don't need anything more. That's verses 1 through 5. And then how the Scriptures prove this to be true in verses 6 through 14. So that's the lay of the land of of how we're going to unpack this passage before us this morning. Let me pray, ask God to bless the teaching of His Word, and we're just going to jump right in. Father, we thank You that though we are reading texts that were written thousands of years ago, we find that they are very relevant to our lives today. Father, I know that many in this room, like me, we, we have started with faith, trusting, coming to a point of recognizing we need a Savior. But along the line, we've, we've absorbed cultural narratives, both from the religious and irreligious, that somehow we have to be good and good enough. We have to earn it. And it's our performances that matter. And we've departed from the message of grace, the sufficiency of Christ in the cross. Our identity gets mistaken for other things other than sons and daughters that have been bought by the blood of the Son of God. And Lord, thank you because of that, you have written through your servant Paul this book to the letter to the churches in Galatia. Give us ears to hear what you would have to say, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, First, we need to realize how stunned Paul is that the Galatians have drifted so far from this message of grace. Two times you see him calling them foolish. It was just, they're foolish because it was such a dramatic departure from their earlier conversion, which was so genuine and dramatic itself. It was such a genuine conversion, so much so that Paul could say to them in verse 2, it was as if you saw Christ crucified. It was so vivid to you when the gospel was proclaimed, it was as if you could see Christ being crucified yourselves. Now keep in mind, these were Gentiles who lived hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, so they've never seen the Jerusalem church, let alone Golgotha, where Christ was crucified. But the preaching of the gospel was so vivid, it was as if they could see it themselves. And he's so shocked now that they're turning away from that message. Now, if you're a note taker, write down Acts chapter 13, verse 44. Uh, Acts chapter 13 and 14, if you're unaware, are the two chapters in the book of Acts that record the founding and flourishing of the Galatian churches. And we see in Acts 13, 44, Luke says, the entire town showed up at the synagogue to hear the proclamation of the gospel. Acts chapter 14 in a different town in that area of Galatia describes the vivid and radical uh, events of how originally the Galatians thought that Paul and, uh, was it Barnabas, were, were Hermes and Zeus and worshiped them as false gods. When they convinced them that they weren't Hermes and Zeus, they stoned Paul uh, for being a false prophet, and then he came back into the town preaching the gospel. So the Galatians had a radical, genuine conversion that Paul says was so real, it's as if you saw Christ portrayed and crucified yourselves. Paul's preaching was not a a, a dry, lecture-like discussion, but it was a preaching of the gospel with power, such that he could say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
I just love how Paul knew his audience because the Jews always wanted power because they were always stripped of power. They were always oppressed, so they longed for power. The Greeks always wanted wisdom. And he said, to these, it is weakness and foolishness. Their culture doesn't get it. But to those within those cultures that are becoming, being called by God, Christ, He is the power and wisdom. And so his preaching had great power amongst the Galatians. They embraced it, and yet now they turned. Now, real quick, we need to realize what this should tell us right out of the gate, that a Christian is not someone who merely uh, understands things about Jesus. I love the way Paul says, you've seen him. They never have seen him. But it's as if they've seen Christ crucified themselves. It was so powerful to them that it moved them. It moved them to the point where it wasn't that just Christ was crucified, but it was that Christ was crucified specifically for them. This is what happened when the Galatians heard the gospel and when they believed. And yet, like so often, like so many of us in this room, like I do myself, As I said in the prayer, our cultural narratives take us away from the simplicity and the truth and the power of the gospel, that we have to earn it, that we have to somehow merit it, that God loves us, but it's contingent on our performance for Him. And Paul's saying, you do not understand the gospel. That, that, That is so part of your culture and society, but that is so foreign to the gospel that in verses 2 and 3, he tries to underline his point by these two parallel verses, and he contrasts, look at verse 2 and then verse 3, he's contrasting the works of the law performance with the hearing of faith, right? And then verse 3, he contrasts beginning with the Spirit, but then being perfected by the flesh, There's that trajectory that Paul's talking about, that you started where we're supposed to, but then you let the cultural narrative take over. And rather than the hearing of faith and believing in the Spirit, it's become works of the law and perfection and completion in your flesh. To believe in the gospel is not merely to assent to beliefs about Jesus but it's also to stop trying to attain salvation by ourselves. Bless you. And Paul says that in verse 3. He says to them, are you, have you, are you so foolish? Uh, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by hearing of faith? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? That word, I think the NIV translate that as complete. I like that. Paul is saying... You started this one way, but now are you perfected? Are you complete in yourself? Paul is describing the way we live our lives. Friends, we are all striving to complete ourselves, aren't we? We're all trying to make ourselves acceptable to God, to ourselves, to others. And we try to attain that, whether it be through moral or relational or vocational achievements, We are all trying to make ourselves complete. Before we became Christians, we were pursuing personal projects, our own personal efforts to make ourselves feel complete, to make ourselves feel perfected. But to believe in Christ means we no longer are looking to ourselves to become complete. We look to Him. It's not our achievements that that finishes it. 
It's the achievement of Christ. So much so the Scottish hymn writer James Proctor said in his hymn, one of the verses in his hymn, it is finished, he writes, lay your deadly doings down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him alone, gloriously complete. See, the result of believing the vividly portrayed gospel was that these Galatians had received the Spirit of God. That was the promise of the new covenant, that God's Spirit Himself would indwell His people. But they stopped trying to be complete in Christ and picked up again trying to be complete in themselves. They picked up again their deadly doings. The reason Proctor says and calls them deadly doings is because they're things that we do, but they're deadly because we think that the things that we're doing are gaining for us some stature or merit with God. When in fact, we're only digging our own graves further because we're thinking we're attaining our own righteousness and we're forgetting God Himself. Because the new covenant is not, I'll help you out and then you carry on the rest of the job. The new covenant is God's Spirit comes to His people. Ezekiel the prophet said it vividly in Ezekiel 36. You don't need to turn there. It'll be on the screens. And I want you to notice who's doing all the action of the verbs. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Oh, Ezekiel couldn't say it more clearly that the new covenant was all about what God was doing for His people. He says, I'm going to put in you a new heart. I'm going to take from you a stony heart and put one of flesh, and I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and obey my rules. But something happened to the Galatians. They went back to believing that righteousness, that God loves them by their performance, back to their deadly doings. Pastor from um, Harbor Presbyterian Church in San Diego, Dick Kaufman, writes this. I think it's brilliant. He says, Christians think that we are saved by the gospel, but then we grow by applying biblical principles to every area of life. But we are not just saved by the gospel. We grow by applying the gospel to every area of life. Paul's making the same point here in verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Notice it's present tense. It's not something that's done in the past. You became a Christian. God's done with that. He's saying right now, the person who gives you the Spirit, who does the miracles in your life, does he do that because of the works of the law or because you are responding in faith? Notice how how Paul is linking the work of the Spirit to the gospel in, in inseparable terms. The Spirit works as you apply and use the gospel in your life. The Spirit works as we use and apply the gospel to our lives. Now, we're going to unpack a little bit about what that means in a little bit, but we need to realize that as we study the book of Galatians, our failure to obey is not just a matter of willpower. 
right? That our failure to obey God is not, is not a matter that we lack the willpower, so we shouldn't respond by simply saying, I'm just going to resolve to try harder. How many of us do that? But that is, Paul's saying that is an attempt to earn your righteousness through some kind of obedience to a law, right? How many of us have failed? and I did that thing again for the hundredth time this month. I'm just going to stop. Paul's saying that's trying to earn your righteousness through works of a law of some sort. So we need to realize through Galatians, our, our, our failure to obey is not a lack of willpower. It's something fundamentally more different. The way to progress in the Christian life is the same way we began it, by being captivated by the person and work of Christ and abandoning these self-trusting ways to make ourselves complete. So, um, let me try and give a, a concrete illustration of anger. So, you, you shouldn't say, Lord, I have a problem with my anger. I have a problem with anger. Please take it away by your power and give me the grace to be more forgiving. How many times we pray those kinds of things? God, I just have this bad temper. Just take it away and make me more forgiving. We need to apply the gospel right at that point. Now remember with me in, in, in Galatians chapter 2 verse 12, when Peter was afraid and he started to compromise the gospel message. In verse 14, Paul rightly knows, he says, that fear is not a result of anything but the fact that Peter was not walking in line with the gospel. And so Paul could say the same thing, whether it's fear, whether it's anger, whatever it might be, the deficiency isn't that you don't have the willpower, is that you're not walking in line with the gospel. So in other words, we may have began as Christ with our Savior, but something somewhere along the line became our functional Savior instead of Christ. And, and you've heard me use these terms. We have a, what I call a professed faith, and then we have a functional faith, yeah? It, the professed faith is the things we're always going to say publicly, but the functional faith is where we actually live in the day-to-day -day grind. And so, we started with Christ as our Savior, but somewhere, something along the line became our functional Savior in the place of Christ. Instead of looking to Christ as my hope, instead of looking to Christ as the one that completes me and my goodness is in Him because of His work, it's now transferred to something else. So, instead of just asking God to remove our anger or exercise sheer willpower against it, we should be asking if I am so angry right now, what do I think I need right now to make me complete? What is being withheld from me right now that I, that I feel that gives me peace or control that I'm trying to get back with my angry outburst? You see, anger comes from the fact that something that we value, something that we have invested ourselves in, Paul's language would be something that we've become, become an idol that we've taken into our heart has become really important to us, and somebody's just pushed that idol over. I mean, I don't know about you, but I would love to have self-parenting kids, right? So where when I come home, they're, they're just fine. They're just happy to see dad and bask in the goodness of him coming home. That doesn't work. When I come home, there's ministry to be had, and, and sometimes it gets me upset, 
And I realize, oh, my desire to have self-parenting kids, to, to have comfort and ease, has just been pushed over by this glorious gospel opportunity of my children fighting with each other or talking back to mom. Oh, really what God is doing, says, Rick, I love you so much. I realize that you're starting to worship your comfort. You had this evening planned out, and it's okay to have a, a nice evening at home, but you want it so bad that when that's challenged, rather than trusting for your goodness in me and my, my plan for you, you get angry. See how that works? Or, or you desire so much to be so well thought of that when somebody in public says anything that would somehow stain your character, you get so angry with that person because you can't tolerate being thought of as less than awesome. Because now it's not about Christ and His work and you recognizing I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I have a reputation after all. And I can't abide someone challenging that reputation. And now you've become angry at them because suddenly in your heart, Christ, your identity, His work on your behalf has been replaced with an idol of comfort, an idol of the approval of others, an idol of control, and not you name it. But functionally speaking, some other Savior rules our heart, and it's not a Savior that's any good. So the answer is not simply directly attacking my anger and saying, I should just stop being angry, I should just stop being angry. The answer is repenting of the functional saviors I have turned to that are failing me and rejoicing in the finished work of Christ on the cross that he knows I could never be the best parent or best employee or the best husband or whatever it might be, but that's okay because in Christ it's all redeemed and I rest in that. You see, when the gospel's applied, the spirit works and sin withers. That's what Paul's getting at here. Saying is, you have to apply the gospel, and when that happens, the spirit works and your sin withers. Only he is the savior that can do that. All these other false saviors, your comfort, your ease, your, all these things, they're going to fail you. And you see their failure, in this case, when anger comes out. So, now Paul turns to the Scriptures to make the same point. So he's saying, Galatians, it's not about coming to Christ in faith and then working it out on your own at that point. It's all about understanding the gospel and then applying the gospel. And let's look at probably the, the fountainhead of the Jewish faith would be Abraham. So in verse 6, it seems like a sudden switch. What is it? Where did Abraham come from? But this is actually a stroke of genius on Paul's part, keeping in mind that the false teachers were saying to these Gentile converts, yeah, you can be a Christian, that's fine, just live like a Jew. You can believe all these things, just live like a Jew. And so by Paul showing that Abraham, who was the father of the Jews, was made right before God, justified before God, on the basis of faith and not keeping the law, Paul is saying, look, Abraham, the founder of the Jewish race, agrees with me on this point. So in, in chapter 3, verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, he's quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Now, if you're a note-taker, write down Genesis 12, Genesis 15. At some point this week, read those two chapters because those are these huge chapters in redemptive history where the, the, the promise of the gospel, in a sense, is given in seed form and what Abraham will become. Very important. 
Now, in verse 7, though, Paul says, those of faith know then, that is, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So, so who are those of faith? Paul says they are the ones who believed like Abraham did. They are the ones who believe God. It's interesting. It's not believe in God. Abraham believed God. There's a difference. There is a difference. Friends, in the Bible, James 2.19, as a matter of fact, says it, that the demons believe in God, and it does them no good. It just, they just shudder. You can't believe God and not believe in God, but you can believe in God and not believe God. I know that sounds confusing. Let me say it again. You can't believe God and not believe in God, but you can believe in God and not believe God. What I'm getting at is that mere assent to facts of doctrine and understanding things about Jesus is not the same as saving faith. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, the verse we had on the screen a little while ago, James made the point. He says, you believe that God is one, a theological doctrine. That's great. The demons believe that too. As a matter of fact, the demons have probably better theology than most of us. They know God that way. They know facts about God. But what Paul's saying is saving faith is not just about dry facts. Saving faith grips us as it gripped the Galatians. It's a recognition of what He has done on the cross in such a profound way that it melts our hearts and moves us to navigate through this world in a way that's distinctly different, distinctly with a Godward orientation. Abraham as well continues, Paul continues how Abraham shows us that saving faith also is believing in God's provision. You see, in Genesis 12, when God approached Abraham and Abraham responded and God gave him the promises of a, new, of a nation and blessing and all the land and everything, Abraham was excited about that. Fast forward many, many, many years into Genesis 15, Abraham, who's very advanced in age and his wife, nearly 90 years of age, says, God, you said I was going to be the father of a great nation. You kind of got to start with at least one child at one point, don't you think? And God took Abraham out. He said, look at the stars of the sky. Can you count them? He says, no, they're innumerable. He says, your offspring will be as plentiful as those. And the scripture says Abraham believed. Abraham believed God. Abraham recognized that there is, he needed an heir, and there was no heir apparent. This was an impossibility. His circumstances said, everything about his life said, this is not going to happen. But God had a conversation to, with them, and it says Abraham believed God. Abraham knew only God could do it. He had to believe God, and he did. Abraham believed God. He wasn't just believing in Him. He believed Him. So, Paul says in verse 9, Abraham then is a man of faith because he completely recognized that nothing he could do could change it. So, the only recourse he has is to believe in God's provision, and he did. But Paul recognizes a second kind of person, right? Verse 10, Paul recognizes that there's going to be a second kind of person, and he says it are those who rely on the works of the law. When we rely on something, that's our go-to, right? That, that is the thing we're going to depend on when everything else fails. That's what it means to rely on something. It, it is the essential bottom line of your life. It's the thing that defines you. It's the thing that... that uh, 
gives you confidence. It's the thing that gives you meaning. We all have it, by the way. Every one of us has a, a go-to, a thing that we rely on. If you want to find out what the thing is that you rely on, that is your go-to when everything else fails you, that's the thing you're going to go to, some of these questions may help you. Here you go. Here's a little exercise for you. Answer the question, what is my life based upon? Better yet, how about this? What if I had that I lost or never got would cause me to feel that I had no life left? What do I have or would never get that if I didn't get it or I lost it, my life would have no purpose or meaning? Or you can answer it this way. My life would be complete if only dot, dot, dot. My life would be fantastic if only dot, dot, dot. Whatever the answer to any of those questions is the thing that you rely on in your life. That's the thing you rely on. Now, to have an Abraham-like faith, Paul says, brings blessing. Verse 8 and 9. He says, to have the faith that you recognize that, that it's got to be God that does this thing, and that is my faith in Him. I believe Him to do these things that He will provide. He says, that, that's going to bring a life of blessing. But Paul recognizes there are those who are not going to have a, a, an Abraham-like faith. But to rely on any other thing besides the gospel, Paul says, will bring a curse. And, and in our culture, the only time we think of curses is when we think of swear words. But th that's not what they meant. Paul was not talking about just swear words. He was talking about a kind of a curse that, that we associate with, you know, a wiki magic kind of thing, an actual curse upon you. And Paul's saying anybody who relies on anything other than the gospel will be living under a curse. And Paul meant that both objectively and subjectively. So, so theologically, we will be living under a curse if I choose not to trust the gospel and I'm going to try to please God in some other way, I would have to uphold the entirety of the law and all its commands and demands 100% of the time without fail. That's a curse because you can never do it. So Paul is saying, look, if you want to reject the gospel, you're going to be living under a curse because objectively you'll stand condemned. You are cursed by the reality that you cannot fulfill the law. But it's also a curse, not just objectively in that we stand condemned because I can't fulfill the law. I'm going to be cursed subjectively. So let me use our modern term, psychologically. Unless I'm trusting the gospel, my life is going to be filled with anxiety and insecurities. Because I'm never going to know how much good enough is good enough. Or am I even living up to my own standard of being good enough? So as a result, I become, become oversensitive and very prickly of any criticisms because I can't abide to fail in any way. Or I become envious and intimidated by those who outshine me in their good works. Right? So I either become hypersensitive or I become very intimidated. On the other hand, you might be nervous and timid because you never know if you're doing all right. Or you become arrogant and snobbish because you're trying desperately to convince yourself you are. Either way, we are living under a curse if we try to abide by any other means of satisfying God other than the gospel. So objectively, we stand condemned because we can never fulfill the law. And subjectively, we feel condemned because we're either anxious or insecure, envious or intimidated, all these things. 
because we're trusting in works of the law. Paul says, don't be cursed. Don't be cursed. So we say, well, what? I don't want to be cursed. What's the answer? Verse 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Notice Paul doesn't say that Jesus took on the curse, right? He didn't. Paul says Jesus became the curse. This is a parallel to 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's a very famous passage. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God. Friends, Jesus is treated as if he were a sinner. He was treated as if he was liable for everything a wicked person could be liable for. That's what Paul is saying. There it is. I'm not making this stuff up. There it is. We see it in black and white. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Legally speaking, he became sin in the eyes of God so that God could judge the sin of humanity. Now, the reason this is important to understand is because this reveals the stunning reality of what happens when we believe. If Jesus becomes a sinner for us, that's what the text says, for our sake, it says, for us, for you, if Jesus became a sinner for us, then we become righteous in the same way. That's what Paul's saying. There is an exchange taking place on the cross. Jesus becomes the curse, back in Galatians 3.13, becomes the curse so that, verse 14, the blessing of Abraham, which is we be the people of God, we're people, God's people, the blessing of Abraham could come to the Gentiles, could come through faith. Salvation is so much more than merely being forgiven. It is so much more than that. It is more than the slate being wiped clean. Paul is saying and showing us time and time again, salvation means we're perfect in front of God. You know, we don't begin the Christian life by trusting the curse becoming gift imparting life and death of Jesus and then finish it off by human works and our achievements. That's not how it goes. We go on as we began, having our hearts melted and moved because we're captivated by the work and the person of Jesus Christ on our behalf. In other words, we never get past the gospel. We never have to. We never need to. And that is the message that Paul keeps hammering home in Galatians. And we're going to hear it from five, six different ways. And you might think, all right already, I've heard it enough. The reality is we can't. Because if you're like me, there probably isn't a day that goes by that you gauge your feel that, that God has affection for you based on something you did or didn't do. And we forget what Christ has done is sufficient. We give in to the cultural narratives that the cross wasn't sufficient. It needs a little bit of me kicking in. And Paul says, you ought to be foolish. You're bewitched if that's what you think. Because the grace of God is given to us, not because we earned it, but because He's gracious. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that time and again, Paul 
like a good parent, is going to say the same message over and over to us in four or five different ways before He leads us to understand what it means to live in light of the gospel. Spirit, forgive us. Make us aware when we have replaced Christ as Savior in our hearts with some other functional Savior that is no Savior at all. Help us to turn away from worshiping things like comfort and ease and convenience and the approval of man and worship only the true Savior of humanity. That itself is a work of your Spirit, and we thank you that you do it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org.